0: Welcome to a brand new episode of the Constructed Criticism Podcast. This is episode 472. It's a very special episode. We're going to have a special guest. It's also special because I'm back, fam. I'm back from the dead. I, was, I wasn't really dead. I was doing family stuff. But I miss you guys. Good to have you back, Spencer.
1: Well, thank you, man. Yeah, the show's not the same without you.
0: Well, that's very kind. I absolutely thought you guys crushed it without me. I was very vocal about that. I hope that the listeners enjoyed... What I, I thought were two really good episodes and I, I just, it's sometimes really fun to like sit back and be a listener of content that like you wish you got to consume regularly, but you don't because like you're a part of it. So like I can but I've already heard it. So it, I don't know. It's, it's a fun experience. It was definitely
2: fun when I was working on uh, MH three to like I was working out every morning, and so like you know Thursday rolls around whatever I can like listen to CC and it's just very uh, it was very interesting at the time to be like having that happen and having it be such a different part of my life.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, one I didn't want to miss two weeks in a row, but like I really wanted to be at my daughter's first thing. But then I was like, you know what though, I get I got to listen to the show, uh, and you guys were kind enough to like change the topic for me. So that like i could do the topic that i really wanted to do so just i just want to give a shout out to you guys uh for doing that but let's dive in uh this is always improving this is the first segment of the show every week because it's the most important thing that you can be doing to be trying to improve each and every week trying to get better you know it it's hard and our guest is going to talk about all the things that kind of make it hard and later on in the show but uh i'll go first because i've been out um I- I don't. Know, do you guys want like what I did this week? Do you guys want like a long term thing, Abe? You can pick.
1: Well, what do you What do you feel is uh, is the biggest thing for you? So I had a team
0: one K plus, which means like scaling price support uh, for one K, and it ended up being a sixteen hundred dollar tournament at a you know friend of the show Oasis Games, and uh, it was Team Unified Modern. And one of the things that we did, if you're a patron that you might know, is that we um, we built out Cyborg Guides and discussed them as a team and had, like, this living doc and things. And it, it was a really interesting process. Um, one, because I got to make fun of Matt Klang for presenting Mason's ideas as his own. That was hysterical um I, I do think i broke the team format uh
2: and then cling I, when i learned something stole my valor i was like you know what i respect it though it's such a good idea like he so had like, to take them
0: like, uh, i'll tell the story really quick he like presents this idea for this team like composition as his idea or it felt like that's what he was doing and then i messaged mason i was like hey like we have this idea for a team composition and then mason's like yeah that's mine did matt talk to you to you because i'm the one that told him this so it was really funny it was extra
2: funny because matt and private was like i i like i'm talking to him i'm eating lunch i like type it out in like a minute including my reasoning why i would do all of it and he just goes dang you're so much smarter than me i've been thinking about this for two weeks and didn't come to this conclusion and it led me down a road of like am i so i went and asked everyone and the only person to get to the same conclusion as me was jerry who was the last person i asked and i
0: was like dang league of our own am i right well so <laughs> like the look of us me <laughs> so for what it's worth i really like the student opposition we ended up playing uh rhinos mono white hammer and skim and we had zero one rings between our 75 And uh, what was really interesting about this was I was team Tron, Scam, Mono White Hammer. Like I thought that would be the best team composition. I think zero people brought that, which I think is crazy. But one of the things that I really liked about this team composition is it meant that everybody but, but Rhinos got all of their cyborg cards, which seems really important in a team event. Like I didn't get Fury and we had to work around that, but everybody else got all their cyborg cards. And when you have Tron in your team, everybody loses a bunch of sideboard cards because artifacts are everywhere in modern sideboards. So that's why I was a fan of this team. And then from there we worked as a team. You can actually check out all the sideboard guides, their living documents in the Patreon. Uh, And it was really fun to like sit down with my two best friends uh, and my teammates to kind of break down like, okay, what do we think about this matchup? what do we feel like is going to happen here? And we went way too deep. Like there's there's six pages of Cyborg Guide notes for all three of the decks. Decks that, that we probably had zero chance of going up against. And I don't know, it was a really good experience to both. It, it really helped me because like, I had played a total of one league of Rhinos and then piggybacked on a Rhinos top eight from QJ uh, for a um, a challenge and like, that was my experience playing Rhinos. Uh, so it was a really good exercise in like breaking down my understanding of what the deck is trying to do, what the format is about through theory rather than through play. Um, and it, it paid off. Like I, I actually X-1 individually. We as a team lost round one and then I rattled off. I, I did not lose another match uh, the rest of the tournament. And uh, it was really cool. Yeah.
1: That's dope. Playing Magic is super dope. I'm glad you got to to do it. And, and seeing it sounds like mason really uh hold the strings in the shadows there to uh,
2: honestly I, I got to do all the fun parts where i was like you just destroy tron you all have real sideboard." fun fact and no Matt one's lost, Matt
0: lost to tron in round one that's why we
2: didn't win round one that's the skill that to, I, I told him you just mulligan every game like you're playing against tron <laughs> and you all win one game because everyone everyone i talked to i think abe sent tron second but almost everyone else was like so obviously you have Tron, and then I'd be like, okay, I don't need to listen to everything else. That That's all I needed proof for. Because so I was like, the level zero is Tron. I think you were one of the few people, Abe, who was like, I think this deck and then Tron. And I was like, so close. So close. <laughs> Anyways, Abe, what was your always improving mode? Uh,
1: yeah, so my always improving mode this week has been, um, you know, I'd kind of taken a, a pretty big step back to, to handle things at work with Lord of the Rings and also wasn't like a standard release set. Uh, But now I've been getting back in the swing of things. You know, the Eldraine spoiler is, I think, nearly complete or maybe complete as of time of reporting. I think it's like maybe only a few cards short. So I've actually just been spending, you know, time just digging in and thinking about, you know, how I'm going to play these cards in whatever formats, uh, just going through and really breaking down, you know, what is exciting to me, what, what seems really cool and getting back into the idea of, you know, what's standard are gonna look like? We have, you know, worlds coming up. Um, that's gonna be a really, really cool event to see to see that. You know, Pioneer is the next, the, still the next tournament that I'm gonna play that really, really matters to me is gonna be, you know, the RC in Pioneer and uh, the Pro Tour in 2024 in Pioneer events. So just becoming really familiar with the cards, seeing how it's gonna affect that format specifically. And um, yeah, just to get really, and, and, I don't know if you guys knew this, but the, this Eldrain set seems kind of strong. I, I talked to you about it Mason before the show, but that's that's what I've been doing uh, this week to, to really stay ahead of things.
0: I love it. I also think the set seems pretty strong for what it's worth. And you also talked to I, me, too. I feel left out that you're like, I talked to Mason about this before the show. We just That's what we're talking about before we hit record,
1: Abe. Yeah, but if I say it to Mason, then I can pitch it to Mason and ask him what he did to always improve this week.
0: Oh, man, you're just a better co-host than me. Mason, what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: I'm just gonna say real quick to this is like the third or fourth time that going into a, a set, I I think there are some bangers in El but I feel like it is not that exciting. And the last couple times that happened has been, and I am not kidding, last Eldrain. Icoria and Dominaria with Teferi 5, uh, which are notably not weak sets. So I'm excited to see how it all plays out. But uh, my always improving moment this week comes from actually playing a Lorcana 1K over the weekend. So I went and played, as far as I can tell, and the TOs seems to tell us, uh, the, the first ever Lorcana 1K event, 1K plus type event. And it was really fun and really interesting because I didn't get much time to actually play my deck. In fact, all of my practice really came from I played some starter decks two weeks ago at Apex, and then I played th- like three games with these decks that the Lost Boys had made at the charity tournament, and then I talked to Garrison in the car for like five hours, thought a little bit about some stuff, had- read some Twitter conversations, and built my deck with the cards the store had, and ended up losing my winning in for the the, the top eight, sorry. And it was really interesting, uh, and the always a pretty moment was... I was playing, and I didn't know what my opponent's deck was because it hadn't been something that I'd seen a lot of people talk about. It was a, a more unique color combination. And the thing that came up was I was trying to think about what to play around in this one spot. And my gut was telling me, hey, you should you know make this trade and do this thing, and it puts them in check. And I was like, oh, I can actually put them in check this other way and basically win on the next turn, and it plays around this one card that I, I could think of from their color. And I was like, oh... I should just play around the card. I know even though this play seems less optimal. I should have trusted my gut that I thought that card was weak and people wouldn't play it. And if I'm in a winning situation, my opponent probably wouldn't play the weak card. And what ended up happening is my opponent actually drew like a man of war variant and won the game just barely. And I was like, Oh, and I lost game three in a really close one. And so kind of stuck with my gut and just sort of given my instincts of what I think is strong and what was good about the game, which I think had put me in a really good spot for everything else. Uh, I trusted that. And I also trusted my opponent to also make smart decisions. And it comes to deck building, even though we're new, it's a new game and everything. You know, I think the card was a, a little too weak to even be playing around. And I put myself in a position where I just lost playing around a card that I probably should not have been. And I should have been like, Hey, if you draw that card, good games, but I don't think you'd be in this position of that card was in your deck. And got punished accordingly. And it was a good moment of remembering, like I mentioned in coaching all the time that your opponents are real people who think and have thoughts and they are trying to win the game and you should give them the respect as such, unless they specifically show you something like that kind of card in a previous game, et cetera. So I should have given my opponent that same amount of respect, especially in a game one situation. And I did it and got punished accordingly. And that's a really great feeling. So.
0: Yeah. I I find that, you know, learning from failures is always easier. (laughs) And also, like, usually feels pretty rewarding. I know that that, like, sounds weird, but, like, I, there's, like, a, oh, man, like, I made this mistake, and, like, I can see visibly what the outcome would be if I had not done this. And I don't know mm-hmm. that it feels good to me. Yep,
2: I agree.
0: Just want to give a quick shout-out to our newest patron, Joaquin. Uh, super active in the patron, right off of joining. I love it when we see that. Uh, had a great conversation with Adrian. Uh, being Being a part of this community is, like, I don't know, like so rewarding to me just as a host to like see these type of interactions happening. Uh, if you wanna become mm-hmm. a patron, it starts at $1 to get, you know, that shout out on the show all the way up to uh, $25 for a t-shirt, but just $5 a month gets you access to that discord. And we really, really appreciate it every time. I was just gonna say the show will always be free, but we wanna make sure that, you know, for those who have the ability to give us support that we're giving them a community that's really awesome. All right, that is gonna do it. We're going to jump in. Abe's gonna take over to in, interview his mentor and friend. Hey, Abe, can I ask? Like a skilling, how excited are you to interview Wedge Wolf? Easy ten. 10. Easy 10. Easy 10. Well, let's jump in there. I mean, go, oh, go ahead. Easy 10. Just look at that smile. He's so stoked. Alright, let's go talk to Jonathan's kick.
1: Alright, and for our main topic this week. Uh, We have actually got a guest that I am super duper excited to have uh, on talking about something that I think just about everyone uh, in Proving Magic could use a little bit of a a primer with and also just, you know, a player who's near and dear to my heart. We've got Jonathan Zkenik here. Uh, You want to say hi to people, John? Hi. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so a little bit about Jonathan. Um, You know, I found him back when he was writing for Star City Games way back in the day, uh, Star Select Writer. You know, he's been uh, on and off the Pro Tour for, I mean, as long as I've known him. Um, most recently, you know, in his last real stint on the Pro Tour was a, a gold pro, uh, had a GP top eight. I think most famously being the legacy player during the Magic 25th uh, Pro Tour and, and finishing just outside the top four um, of that Pro Tour. But I think most notably being one of the nicest guys in Magic to uh, everyone's count. So why don't do the people, John?
3: Yeah. Hi. So you know, long time listener, first time being interviewed for this, I guess. But uh, I'm I'm excited to be here. And even though I'm not as active these days, I'm more than excited to speak on my thoughts on pretty much anything. So here I am.
0: I I always love it when we can get people on the show that are mentioned on the show a lot. That are just like, oh, Jonathan, like you, you're one of those somebody that the listeners have heard your name because Abe speaks so highly of you. So it's nice to get you on to to where they can finally put a face and a voice to
3: the kind
0: of those mentions.
3: Yeah. I I can only hope that I live up to those sorts of impressions, but I'll, I'll just be me the whole time. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. I
1: mean, one of the things I remember you telling me was that someone, uh, I think from your work who listens to the show was, uh, was like, Jonathan, you're basically on the show. You know, you you come up for every, every fourth episode or so. So, you know, it's really great to, to be able to give the listeners a lot of context on what, you know, obviously means a lot to me is over the years, we've played, uh, quite a lot together and worked on, on quite a lot together. And so you guys are really influential to me, you know, so why don't you speak a little bit to your journey through magic? You know, what's really, um, been your level up moments, things like that, uh, in terms of what's gotten you to improve and, and be the player that you are today.
3: Yeah. So we'll, we'll just kick it off from the start. Uh, seven year old jonathan is walking with his father around kb toys if that even exists anymore i think i think they probably don't exist anymore but uh he finds portals uh, second age starter set so that's what i started with uh, i remember the first card i ever cast was a ravenous rats which was pretty sweet I, I pretty much just played exclusively with my family um so my older sister and father played and i was pretty obsessed with Chandelar. For those of you who don't know, that's a kind of really old school game where you walk around with a character and you start with random cards all the way up to Arabian Nights, but starts with the alpha and it uses old rules. So I wasn't necessarily in tune with all the rules by the time I started playing with people outside of my family. But there's just a couple of happenstance moments where I ended up going to like a Wizards of the Coast store where they had a tournament when I was nine. I played some uh, drafts also uh, around Odyssey era. So then eventually I went to my first uh, FM in Somerville, New Jersey. Uh, there's this one place called Comic Fortress, which I don't think exists anymore. Uh, but then I moved on to playing at Target, uh, which was pretty much once the original team Target kind of stopped playing there. That's a little bit when I started, there was some small overlap there. But my, my journey is like kind of interesting because I wouldn't say I really had an explicit mentor. I think a lot of the times Sarah, growing up, uh, I definitely had that little kid ego, like when you feel like you're slightly smarter than some of the adults, as in there's all these adults flying and I'm able to keep up with them. Uh, so I, I definitely had a little bit more of an ego when I was a kid. Uh, but I always just really had a focus on kind of improving and having fun with the game and community and th- those sorts of things. So, I didn't really care if I surrounded myself with people better than me, people worse than me. I didn't really have many aspirations. Then I kind of discovered what the Pro Tour was. Uh, there were something called JSSs and later MSSs, which were uh, like junior Super Series events. So, if you were 15 or younger, and then later 18 or younger, you were able to play in the scholarship tournaments. So, I got to meet some people along the way. Probably most notable was uh, Calcano, and I had a few battles in in, in that era but I, I kind of just stuck more towards local events and um really just i just st- stuck a little bit more towards local events and didn't really have the most money that i was willing to spend on magic cards so i would always be playing with slightly worse cards and i'll try to play them better I was also notably bad at draft, despite enjoying it so much. Uh, so the joke around the, the group of friends I grew up with was, if Jonathan ever gets a reasonable deck, we're all in for it. But if, um, if he drafts normally, we all have a shot. Uh, so so it, it was just kind of a fun environment to be around. Uh, my first taste of maybe like being able to do something bigger was at a GP New Jersey. Uh, where there was a PTQ where I lost the finals to Paul Chian, beating like LSV and the Swiss, and it was just like a really cool moment for me. I was 14. Uh, I ended up playing my first Pro Tour when I was 16 by being ranked top 100 in the world, by having back-to-back finals of Star City events with fairies, which was really cool. And then for most people, I feel like once you hear the first Pro Tour, it's not many years before their second Pro Tour, but I kind of just thought that it was more or less a fluke and just wanted to keep on improving, uh, k- kind of a theme on this podcast, but I just want to keep on getting better. And I knew that I could just grind ad nauseum, but really I just want to focus on having a good process and really just learning. Uh, so senior year of high school, uh, I made my own magic online account. I used to play with my father, but they changed the PTQ rules. So that way it had to be under your name. So that's when I made Wolf 92. Uh, because Watchwolf was my favorite match card at the time for a lot of reasons. And I pretty much stuck to playing there. Th- there were some people that actually knew Watchwolf Wolf 92 before knowing Jonathan Skenick, some people the other way around. So when all that came together, it was really cool. A really mo- notable moment for me was when uh, first year of college, one of the people I looked up to most, uh, Jerry Thompson, actually like tweeted out like oh watch wolf or, or, or sorry watch out for watch wolf night too. that kid's a master and pretty much what happens that back in the day you can actually watch replays of matches of ptqs as they're going on kind of like birding the ptq and he watched this match i played in callblade era where i was playing a Koth jace tezzeret deck which i ended up winning regionals with and going or topping in regionals and going to nationals with. but uh, I played against a burn deck where I was dead to a lot of things but weirdly they weren't playing anything. So I just played cough, kept on animating their mountain and eventually ultimating and killing them with my mountains. At the end of the game they just reveal a hand with four searing blazes, which was like pretty cool. Um, so I would have lost any time I animated my lands. So from there I like had a stint as a star city writer and I traveled a bit. Uh, But ultimately, there wasn't really any reason for anyone to, like, know me. Uh, I I didn't have any, like, notable finishes, uh, but I just care a lot about people and uh, just kind of giving people, like, the kind of ear that would listen to them and help them improve in whatever way they want. If they want to vent, fine, I'll be there and I'll just w- listen to your story if you want to improve. I have a lot of criticism and I feel like most of my career is a little bit different than most because I just learned by falling so much. In fact, I gain a lot by surrounding myself with people that works for me. I actually find that or maybe not of the same like, caliber in all aspects as me um i find that uh, a common adage is to get better you want to surround yourself with people better than you and i think that's a very like specific mentality with specific goals and it depends on your motivations for playing magic uh which kind of ties into like how you would also use magic online better which we'll, we'll get to shortly but um pretty much i wanted to be in the hall of fame that was my my big dream um and i would play Magic like you know, 40 to 50 weekends a year between Magic Online and traveling. And I tried to think why I wanted to be in the Hall of Fame. And to put a little bit bluntly, I felt like I just wanted the, the clout or the ability to positively impact people's lives. I felt like getting into the Hall of Fame, people would just have no choice but to listen to me. And I feel like there are some members of the Hall of Fame that are maybe not as good people to look up to. So I want to offset that. That was really my goal. So by the time I was a gold pro, uh, so the, the time between my first two pro tours was, let's see, 2009, 2016. So like, yeah, maybe like seven years, which is pretty long for most people. But I knew by the time I would get back into the pro tour, I would just be good enough to stay on. My goal wasn't to like, so a BTQ, never day two or something like that. So I knew I might've been quote unquote overqualified for staying on the pro tour, but I just knew it would naturally come. So I was able to stay on for a few years. And when I was a gold pro, uh, people started knowing me as, you know, this, this nicer guy that would also play very well. And I'm still mentioned to this day by various streams. Uh, lots of people are very nice, especially on this podcast, which I appreciate very much. And then I think it was when I was interviewed for the humans of magic podcast, and then eventually featured in the book, I realized that I actually had everything I wanted. I didn't need the hall of fame to do anything. In fact, I already achieved what I wanted. And at that point I kind of didn't pursue as much pro magic uh, because of COVID, and I, I, I didn't like the remote uh, system as much for really networking and meeting people. So I kind of took a seat back and realized that I could still possibly impact people's lives. So here I am.
0: You you rattled off two ten win uh, player tours uh, to be the ninety first Elo rated player in the world right now. Uh, just to end that though, so good on you for that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, I'm lucky that MTG ELO project doesn't have have any sort of decay. I've been fluctuating between you know 80th and 100th, but I can still say I'm top 100 in the world at least until the RC in December. So,
2: no, you gotta love it. You and Ben White are both writing that note ELO decay as long as you can, yeah. Uh, but. I was funny that you mentioned. Like, I'm glad you realized you did reach it because when the first thing I thought was, is like, when the podcast is done, I'm gonna tell him, like, dude, you did reach your goals. I don't know if you realized you did, so I'm glad that you know that. And it mm-hmm. wasn't a moment we had to be like, dude, you did it, because I I do think you've done that, and it's something where people like still like speak of you and like they speak nicely of you, and definitely at someone where it's like, yeah, like I think a lot of people thought for a long time you have to be this cutthroat person mm-hmm. if you're gonna succeed in magic, and I think we as a community now, basically understand that's not the case. But when you were coming up, it wasn't that way. And I think you mm-hmm. really kind of walked so that other people could run like that. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was very important. If that was all you had done in Magic, let alone, you know, help Abe or whatever, uh, then I think, you know, that'd be more than enough. You know, I, I was just thinking when he mentions to connect worse players like you and me. That's why we hang out with Abe so much. It's just like a common bond, I can just tell. <laughs>
3: If we're being real, I just think most of the people, including myself, are not very good at magic. And uh, so it's actually pretty easy to surround yourself with people that are maybe not as good as you in one spe- aspect or another. Uh, and I think there's very few people that are just like straight A's at everything. 100% agree.
1: You know, kind of looking back on everything like you just did, you know, are there or what are some of the like specific, you know, moments or things that, you know, really. F- helped you get to the point of not only accomplishing, you know, what you wanted to do, setting out by mm-hmm. kind of changing the game in terms of how uh, the kind of representation there is in the game in terms of like personality, but, um, you know, being able to accomplish that with with the success you ha- you've had and um, mm-hmm. improving at the game so much, you know, what what maybe some of that looked like.
3: I would say a lot of that comes down to a more open-minded approach towards magic and life. Uh, so I'm a very introspective person. I started roughly when I was 14, just being super critical. I have journals that I keep track of everything and stuff like that. Uh, but one thing I'm pretty good at doing is kind of listening to a lot of different people. And I don't really care if it's your first FM or if you're a hall of famer, I think a lot of opinions are just valid. Like people don't just, say things just because like sure there's like twitter where it could be like very cloud related but if we're in like a constructive environment and someone says something it, it's worth listening to them almost regardless of their status i think a lot of my best conclusions just came from someone expressing something to me in passing and that just caused light bulbs to go off. Um, And me even taking a step further or combining it with other experiences I've had. And uh, I guess in some ways I try to give that back out, but uh, for, for a few um, examples, there was one time I played at a uh, like a team pre-release. I used to play with my older sister and father at these pre-releases. I played against a a pro at the time. And uh, he kind of just said like, oh, so what are you playing at the next Pro Tour? And keep in mind at this point, I've never even played in my first Pro Tour. And I'm just like, oh, probably nothing because I'm not going. And he's like, oh, but like, you're just so good. Like it actually doesn't make sense. And then he asks like, what decks I play? And then I say, oh, I just play whatever cards I have. and I try to play them well. It's just like, but you're just technically good. You should just play the best deck and then just be on the Pro Tour. And there's a lot more like connections and people you can meet there and all that stuff. And Kind of resonate with me very late, actually. Uh, the way I won most of the Moto PTQs to qualify for the Pro Tour, and even when I wasn't playing Modern or Legacy, a lot of the times I was just playing what I thought was the best deck and not playing anything super fancy. Like maybe I'd play like a cool cyborg card or something like that. But like from a macro stance, a lot of my career was. Uh, Predicate on just playing the best deck better than everyone else because I thought I was like pretty good at the fundamentals, but then uh, taking a more exploitative, uh, exploitative approach when possible. Um, another good example from, from like a confidence perspective. There's another pretty well-known player at the time that that was having a conversation with another guy that was kind of known and. Uh, the conversation goes like, oh, this is Jonathan. Like, you should get to know him. It's like, oh, but why don't I know you already? And the the guy's just like, oh, well, actually, if Jonathan went to every event that I went to, there's no way he doesn't place higher than me in every event. And this person was like pretty well known, was like crushing the Star City Circuit and stuff like that. And uh, from then on out, actually, every tournament we played together, but one, I always did better than them, which was kind of sweet. And then the last one was kind of just my level up moment in draft. Uh, so I was not a very good drafter for a long time. I couldn't really understand it because I felt like it's pretty, pretty creative, pretty exploitative and it didn't really click for me. And it really came to me when I three owed my pro tour draft at uh, hour of devastation and I played against Tim Wu in the last round and he was actually in, in contention for draft master and I might've beat him out of it or whatever, uh, which feels kind of bad in retrospect because Tim's fantastic. but. He just talked about limited in a way that didn't make sense to me. He kind of just said, like, yeah, it's pretty weird. Like, I really feel like my deck just has a good matchup against you. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to have a good matchup against me? This is draft. Like, anything can happen. He's just like, no, like, there's only so many things that can happen. And like, my deck should, like, if I took my archetype against your archetype, it's a favorite archetype. And I'm just like, but what does that mean? And he's like, well, in constructed, like, don't you have these things that have like matchups? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, okay, yeah, just matchups. And I'm like, okay. And like, m- maybe I'm paraphrasing and part of it is just like, maybe my imagination, but he definitely used the word matchup and it really just like resonated with me. And I took it like steps further where I actually was in contention for informal draft master that one year uh, that ended with like thrown a bell And, um, people like Zach Allen, like noted that it was, so wild that i was in contention for tra- draft master when i literally did not play a draft before any of those pro tours and it wasn't me just like winging it it was me just understanding in a holistic way like how limited works it was actually through this like tim Wu mindset where i would like research the metagame ask people what they're doing and then try to figure out how to be like one step ahead of that uh, which i don't necessarily think is exactly how he approaches it or anything but just the word matchup like just click something in my head. I'm like, this is just constructed. But what's cool about ProTour drafts is if it's it's like a three round uh, of eight people pod play. So you play in the pod. So the step further I took was when I draft, I actually think about how the metagame is evolving around me. Uh, so I actually build my deck and cater it to the evolving metagame, not the one that just exists in a vacuum like if you play um say like on arena or a draft league and you play against random people that's actually a different meta than when you play at the same table as other people definitely a lot
1: to to take in there i, I especially like what you just said about um you know limited matchups i feel like uh something that i'm really passionate about that we've talked about on the show um a couple times recently is lateral thinking and you're just taking concepts from one thing, applying to another. There's something I know that I really picked up. I kind of had in myself and I think we really both went off that when when we were working together a lot, but just how you were able to apply. I didn't even know that story about that conversation with Tim Wu. able really, really apply that to move that over. Um, Something else that you said in there that I do want to get into, um, you know, kind of more on the excuse we found to bring you on. Um, You know, you said that, Uh, right? Most of your moto PTQs uh, you'd won during your, your stretch of getting onto the train uh, Mm -hmm. during the time you were, you know, was playing, you know, some of the best decks and really understanding the metagame and then maybe tuning a bit, but not, you know, going overboard and reinventing the wheel. You know, how did you use magic online? It was really your primary source of, um, of outlet for playing for Mm -hmm. uh, a long time. And how did you really use that? You know, how would you explain the way that you used it to someone who was trying to get in and use it as a tool to improve uh, for themselves today.
3: Yeah. So I think that actually comes from what your motivations are for even playing Magic in the first place. So if your goal, for instance, is to make money from Magic, I highly suggest you just get a part-time job doing something else because the the money isn't there. just put very simply, I mean, it's going to be less fun. But if money's your number one motivator, do something else. Uh, okay, so we're we're past that one. So, so what what are other reasons why you could play Magic? Uh, one could be that it's arguably the best game ever made, and you just enjoy the process of playing Magic. And even that like branches out from there. But another reason could be a form of self expression one thing that I think is literally just like art is reading a deck list. Uh, one thing I used to do in high school was we weren't allowed any sort of technology or anything, but I thought the classes were kind of boring and easy. So I would actually print out the top eight of a tournament on sheets of paper, and I would just lay them down on my desk and I would just simulate the matchups in my head. I would try to figure out how they would like sideboard and how those matchups would play. And if it would change play draw, and then, like, I would look then at the results of the tournament and see how that lined up. If there's cover ma- like, there coverage matches, then I would cross-reference with that. But I've just simulated, like, so many matches in my head uh, from specifically freshman year of high school. Now, when I read a deck list, it's kind of just this art form that I could talk more about later. Uh, but that is another way, like an expression of self. Like, yeah, so waffle Top is the control player. So you can see his expression of what control looks like in you know, twenty twenty-three. Um, so those things are really cool. Um, so once you find your actual reason for wanting to play magic, you can apply uh magic online appropriately. So if one reason is that you just like doing really cool things and you don't really care about uh maybe going on the pro tour or stuff like that, then you probably just stick to the leagues and like the fact that you can always find an opponent. You don't have to like leave your house or even change out your pajamas. Like that's pretty sweet. And that's probably the extent to which Magic Online acts for you. But if you're kind of striving more to be a high level player, there's still some more questions. Uh, Like, do you want to be a high level player that is kind of the result of your environment? And so there are players that I think are even current pros that I don't think as an individual that if I isolated them from everyone else and told them they could not work with anyone else, I actually don't think they would stay on the train or like I don't think they would be like attending the Pro Tours. And they do really good work in teams. Like they're good at like poking holes in other people's ideas. They do a good job of like corroborating like a lot of things and just being a really good role player. But they might lack this individual like aspect or this art form Um, and I think that is something that magic online is really good at improving on. Uh, but like, if your goal is simply to be on the pro tour and maybe have some like accolades, like if it's really sure, it's not the money, but if it's like the prestige of doing something, just like go be friends with like some team, like you don't actually need to use magic online, like per se, you can just like, I don't want to say like riding other people's coattails per se, but you can kind of just be more like the member of the team that happened to perform this time. But then you get the people that are a little bit more individuals. So like if you, so so I said, I didn't really have any mentors explicitly, but there were two to three players that I really liked growing up. Um, So Jerry Thompson and Michael Jacob are just by far the top two. Uh, And both of them uh, share something common that I'd like to think I share in common with them, which is each of them are kind of just like their own individuals. They just work differently than other people. And people will spend time trying to like, oh, how did like Jerry or Michael Jacob like come to those conclusions and stuff? Like Michael Jacob wrote an article on Star City about like, what the amount of cards in a deck means to you like conceptually like if you play one of versus two all the way up to four of and i used to like follow that for a while and then i like adjusted it from there because i'm going to do my own thing now but i like that these two people in particular like came up with their own strategy the third one is paul Rietzel. i just love that he's able to have a normal life and be so good at magic and that's what i aspired to be at the time how did i use magic online and how do i suggest other people use magic online so Back in the day, they were a lot more generous with how replays worked. There were something called daily events, where even if you did not participate in the daily events, you can watch the games. And this took place specifically in Lore lower Wind era, so when fairies were around. And what I would do is I would just come home from school and just watch all the daily events. And whenever a player plays thought sees, I would pause the match and I would determine what the player who cast the thought sees what their hand or hand range had to be to have selected that card because it reveals one of the hands but not the other one and it would just do that every time in all these like bears mirrors and stuff uh so i think uh like probably a larger thing i should go into is how to get better at magic through watching uh i actually think a lot of uh time is wasted and is even net worse by playing magic if your intention is to get better so i think a lot of people when they play magic online have like a tv show open they're texting their significant other like it's just not like a dedicated approach and it's not even really simulating what's like to play in a magic tournament and you're better off just not playing magic then like it kind of reminds me of uh if anyone's like played tennis if you just gave someone a tennis racket and don't tell them like how to hold it or like show them like swing low to high or any of these basics, like they might get some of it, but if they train for like too long, like that, like say a year or two with literally no direction and no one to imitate or anything like that. Then you're gonna have to spend all this time undoing all these bad habits, just to then be at the start. Like you would have been better if you never played magic. I think that's true for most magic players. I think most people just want the result of like, I am amazing at magic but won't necessarily think about what is the process like, what does the process look like to get me to the point where I'm amazing at magic. And a lot of that comes from being a better watcher. So I think a lot of people kind of watch magic in more of like a sports way where you like shout at the referee and you have someone that you're cheering for. So now you're heavily biased every time you analyze something and whatnot. I I think a lot of people, um, kind of like, oh yeah, like I would have done that. Or like when people are playing together, there's a lot of backseating, which really bothers me personally, personally, but like, I think there is sometimes like a lack of sympathy for the fact that a human chose to make a decision that they thought was rational. Why don't you just give them benefit of the doubt? Like you're watching, you have none of the pressures. You have nothing to lose by getting it wrong. Like you're not there. Like you can't say you would make that play. Why don't you at least start with like, well, they made that play. What could they have been thinking? Like just the simple like change of framing. But um, yeah, so I pretty much consumed a lot of like third person content through magic online when I, back when you could do that. Then afterwards, I kind of just played more magic than I thought was reasonable. Uh, So, so it kind of goes against what I said, but after watching all these matches, uh, my freshman year of college, I probably played two to three matches at the same time, roughly like maybe 40 to 60 hours a week. Uh, so, but I was still like being very introspective and still very much like focusing on a lot of different things. Like what I became very good at was being able to see a snapshot of a board state and understand what's important. And that's really good in terms of like how your autopilot works. So I do believe in playing kind of like flow. So if I had to choose another person that, you know, I look up to a lot, it'd be like LSV. I feel like he's talked a lot about flow and using the subconscious. And that's pretty much how I play magic. Like I can't really explain it, but I actually don't think thoughts or numbers or anything like that. Most of the time things just process. And maybe it's from triple queuing and uh, watching so many replays, but the subconscious is like very powerful and to not try to harness that and to do everything with your, with your conscious is very taxing. And I think the human mind can only think so much in a day. And if you're wasting like that conscious effort so much, it seems like you're just not going to be able to do well in the long run for the sake of a tournament. But yeah, so I, I, I'm not saying to be like really good. You need to like play three matches magical, like, you know, concurrently and stuff, but it also magnified if I was not doing some fundamentals well, I would just get pummeled in all of my matches at the same time. So the feedback loop was a lot faster given that I was working by myself. And then there's like a very interesting time in my life, which was junior year of college uh, going into senior year where. I was no longer running for star city, but a lot of people knew me and whenever I play magic online, like people message me on the channels very well known. And I kind of felt like, uh, I didn't deserve it. I felt like some sort of form of imposter syndrome. Maybe, um, I went to one pro tour and yet I just can't make it back. And I kind of just came to the conclusion that I was probably just terrible at magic. Like there's no other logical reason why I would not be on the pro tour, despite playing all these like ptqs other than me being really bad despite like it doesn't matter what other people say because if i was truly good i would already be there so what i actually did was i made a uh, a secret account so not watchbook 92 and what i did was i copied a kenji samura decklist so i knew that it just had to be one of the best decklists for the archetype and i moved it to that account and i moved with it 12 tickets daily events were six tickets at the time and i was just like okay This is all I'm putting on the account. I'm not going back into Watch Wolf 92 until I give myself permission to. So I can only play two events. And if I like do badly in those, I'm just done. So I ended up using a Where have I heard this story? Oh, you might've heard this story? I Hmm. I have heard this story. I'm trying to figure out where. Hmm.
0: I I can't think of anywhere. I think uh, Jerry might've told this story on my old
3: podcast. Really? I think so. Keep going. It's kind of interesting because I feel like I haven't told the story that much, uh, but it could be possible or maybe someone else has done it too. Um, But yeah, so pretty much what ends up happening is uh, my little sister bought me this awesome Hello Kitty notebook and uh, I would just write like a diary entry and I would just like play a match and then I would watch the replays. And since I can only lose so much, I would just keep on watching the same replays over and over again. And I would just like, write every single mistake that i made and sometimes i didn't know how to phrase it from like a macro standpoint so be as simple as just like should not board in this card in this matchup should have mulligan exactly this hand like like they would be as specific or generalized as i could make it um and i noticed like a few trends like one of them was that i wouldn't mulligan enough and i was just trying to figure out why and actually it's tied to a uh like in-person magic problem that i have which is I believe that obviously in a game of magic, you're allowed your time. I think some people take a little bit more than others. So I will on purpose, not Mulligan as much in person because it takes so long because I I feel like I'm only allowed so much time in a match. So I'll actually keep worse hands in paper sometimes that way I can have the extra time in the match. So I love going second. And when my opponent Mulligans, I can actually make the decision that I want to make. So I guess you can take your, your Sekenic Edge there if you want it. But but on Magic Online, it's roughly the same amount of clicks. You click yes or no, and then you have to click yes one more time. So then I realized like it was actually just a problem that I wasn't mulligan enough, and I actually was able to like tie it back to Paper Magic, which was kind of sweet. Yeah, so then I just started noticing patterns, and I learned how to even view my own play from a very like critical but yet forgiving lens. So I think if you have the mental fortitude, the correct way to get better at magic is to realize that you probably haven't played a game correctly in your life or whatever like probably the only game you played correctly was the time you mulled into four and kept a one lander and bricked after that and even that you probably screwed up like you probably put the wrong cards on the bottom or like you probably could have changed something in deck construction and whatever but the problem is emotionally that doesn't really work that doesn't generate the best feedback loop like oh i played a game of magic if i won It must have been because I got lucky or my mistakes didn't cost me. And if I lost, I made mistakes. Like I have too much agency. So I'm not saying that approach works for everyone, but I think if you have like the mental fortitude, it is the one that like allows you to look at it from the right lens. So I think you can do that in as a general person, but in small doses. Like if you play a league, for instance, you can just play one match and just keep on watching the replay and just like you'll never feel like you're losing more money because you already put the money in for the league and you're one match in like it shouldn't cause as much emotional burden. So I really think that the replay feature is really good, but if you're going to use it to solicit more feedback from people, I think it's important to just not even have people better than you just have people that you can trust your emotions with. I think one of the hardest parts is just the, Like a lot of people say they're good at accepting criticism. But like, for instance, I think I'm a fantastic teacher. At my job, I got a bunch of like feedback from people. I told people, like, I want to be a better teacher. Please tell me the things I did wrong. And they'll say how awesome I was. Then they'll give feedback. I can only read one or two of those emails a day because even their feedback, even though they said so many nice things, it just hurts me so much to know that I could have been so much better. And they'll never get that. Like that it's only people in the future that might receive that. But previous Jonathan was already not the best teacher and that, that hurts. Like, so I think just having someone that is not looking to backseat, not someone that's trying to boost their ego, like one of the quotes, that's super minor. Uh, I was actually sleeping over at Abe's place for this tournament, but, uh, what happens that AJ was like trying to figure out a deck that he like a list where he ends up like top the classic with this green black deck. And we're just like lying on beds in, in Abe's place. And he's just like, Jonathan, can you like, help me with this 15 cyborg card. And instead of just like listing a bunch of cards, I start asking him like, wait, what do you do in this matchup? And like, what, what are you trying to like accomplish here? And like, you're playing 25 lands. Like, wh-? and I'm just asking all these questions. Then afterwards, I'm just like, Oh, it sounds like the card just has to be this. And then I just use his reasoning from all these other questions. And then he said something roughly to the extent of like, yeah, Jonathan, that's why I go to you for these questions, because you will give me the answer that I need to hear, not just what you think is right. And um, so I, I think that's just words that a lot of people can live by, not specifically me, but like having someone that's like that in your life. So I'm hearing
1: that if I want to improve, I need to get a Hello notebook
3: mm-hmm.
1: and watch every replay 30 times. And I need to triple Q for the entirety of my undergrad. I need to go back to college mm. and triple
3: Q. Yeah. Well, I think with online courses, it could be a little bit easier now. Um, but uh, yeah. It's the Zoomers say for the, <laughs> the ones that just were doing that. There's definitely a lot of different approaches. And I'm not saying like my approach is a one size fit at all. I just think before you go for things like. Like coaching or before you even just hop into a queue, it's like. I think with so many other areas, it's very obvious how you're supposed to improve. Like, has anyone ever heard like the breakdown of how someone goes from nothing to becoming a good poker player? Like, kind of the like, allocation of time? Anyone can answer. Sorry, but like the, the, the hours and the, the dollars spent? Uh, I, so, I'm probably going to quote the numbers wrong, but it's something like you spend this amount of time studying. Then this amount of time like playing and this amount of time like reviewing hand history of those things and then like studying again. Like there's kind of like these cycles uh that you're supposed to go through. I feel like when I see people getting quote unquote better at magic, it's just like plowing forward with magic and be like, oh, here's my four one list played against this one. It's like there's so much variance in that process. Like if you really want to get better, there's too many aspects to get better in. I think it's better to just isolate the individual components you want to get better at. So here's a very basic one. I used to say that you can't prepare for a tournament and try to get better at Magic at the same time. So when you're trying to prepare for a specific Magic tournament, you care about the metagame, you care about how things are progressing, you care about choosing the right archetype with the right things for the right, you know, you're, you're making all these assumptions. To get objectively just better at Magic, I think you actually want to lock in a deck choice do something a lot safer and just work on the play patterns and like make sure that you understand like what matters in certain matchups i think people try to do too many at once and i think the hard part is that there's just such an allure to playing playing magic i literally just vintage cube from like 9 30 a.m to 10 p.m yesterday without eating like that took me back to college but like it was so much fun but did I get any better by playing Magic? Like I made mistakes in tons of those games, but like I really didn't get better because I never looked back. I just wanted to get that thrill, and that's okay, like once in a while. But if your goal is actually to get good. It, those shouldn't be the thrills that you're seeking.
0: This is this has been something that I've touted for as long as I can remember in Magic. Just this idea of that people watch Magic wrong, and I'm like, like I would throw like Pro Tour watch parties at my house. Mm -hmm. And like people would say, Oh, I would have done this. this." I'm like, are you at this pro tour? Are you the one sitting in the seat? Like, come on. (laughs) Like, let's, let's take this as, this is an opportunity. We get four of these a year at the time. Like, let's take it as an opportunity to learn. And I I think too often, uh, we as magic players just want to be the smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. When the smartest person in the room might be on your screen. And, Mm -hmm. and that's important to know.
3: Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's definitely just a lot of respect for people's opinions in general um like whether or not they're better or worse than you doesn't really matter at some point like they're all just ideas and forms of expression and you can say that it doesn't work with your current logic but like it's also important to understand what their logic could have been. Cause what if you encounter a parallel situation and the knobs are just like slightly different or like the, the circumstances are slightly different. And now their type of thinking is way better. It reminds me of uh, the last paper pro tour I played in where, uh, so it was like pro tour Phoenix and I, I I finish a match and uh, a person walks up to me and says like, Hey, Jonathan, like congrats on the win. Um, In game three, on turn five, you like did this and I think I would have done this. So I'm just curious, like what was your thought process? I just like paused for a little, I I don't even really know this person. And I just paused and I was just like, you know what? You're right, (laughs) Your plays better. Like there's no ego. Like that's one of the best things about Magic Island. You make a random handle, no ego. You don't have to worry about losing. All you lose is money but i feel like just a lot of magic players are a little bit more prideful and like there is some sort of validation to like i have this result just make another account like it just doesn't matter i was considering making another secret account like it's fine but what ends up happening is i sit at the table and i'm just like staring now like just face down like 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 head down like with my deck still and the person's just still standing there and they're just like jonathan like if you don't mind me asking, what's going on? And I was just like, well, you see, like, I understand what thought process I went through to reach that conclusion, or to reach the conclusion that I came to that made the suboptimal play. And you told me to play that is just strictly better. But the problem is, I'm not sure what types of questions I can ask myself or what thought process I can build into my current existing system that allows me to see that line of play in similar situations without being disruptive to, and then just start listing a bunch of other scenarios that I wouldn't be able to analyze way faster if I never asked myself that question. It's like, I'm trying to analyze the payoffs if like I'm supposed to change like my process or not. And it's just like, I did not think that this is where this was gonna go.
1: Yeah, so um, I guess before, kind of getting paid for questions i don't know mason or spencer if either you have questions you want to ask
0: uh you actually answered like a couple of my questions one of them was going to be like the Wolf thing you answered that the other question that i was going to ask is um between you and abe you both have fantastic smiles who has the better smile Mm.
3: jonathan uh yeah i think the I might only have one dimple. I'm never really certain, but I heard that like the, the slight, like half Asian, half white dimples, like really helped me. But I think there's like a certain type of charm that comes with having facial hair and I do not wear it as well as Abe. So I think like, it really just depends on what you're going for.
0: Abe, you had a pretty good smile when you were listening to Jonathan during the podcast today, I was like,
3: man, this, this man loves this
0: man man. Like no other, it's beautiful.
3: One one other piece of advice for Magic online things is if you do play in like a tournament that matters to you, take so many liberties because you're at home. So so one of the coolest stats that I think I have in Magic, uh, I don't have more like Moto PTQ wins than like Stainer, or, Sand or Sandy Dog, but I won like four Moto PTQs in sixteen months, and I actually like top aided like. Nine out of like 11 or something in that span of time, which I think is kind of absurd when you think about the competition. So we're all like online. 200 plus PTQs, probably. Yeah. So, two or three of those, I literally would just do yoga between rounds. Like, I would just be like child's pose for like 10 minutes. Like, I was in the finals of one of them, and like, I'm like, no changes before game three of this like, thing for the, for the, for the Pro Tour, and I'm literally just in Child's Pose for three minutes. I set an alarm, and then it went off, and I'm like, going to crush this guy. All right, my, la- my like, last question yeah. is, which which Pokemon Plushie is your favorite behind you? Ooh. So I, on purpose, moved this giant Pichu here, just so that would be on camera. Uh, so it, it's great, because Pichu's supposed to be a foot tall, but this Pichu is, like, 18 inches tall, which is kind of so a very it's like large Pichu. Like, yeah, it's, so Pichu's, like... Just so awesome. Is Pichu your Smash main? Uh <laughs> I wouldn't say I have a smash main in particular. Um, but I, I, I enjoy playing very casually. Um I guess my friend taught me how to do a few things with Martha Melee, so I guess I guess at that. And then I understand how to crouch cancel, so I can do things.
2: Nice. Mm-hmm. My question for you, Jonathan, is you mentioned when you're playing, you're not even like really thinking about like numbers or anything like that. You're kind of just in a flow state. Mm -hmm. And I was curious, is that still the case? Because you just mentioned playing cube so much yesterday and now you're so far removed from magic. I was wondering Mm -hmm. if that was like during your peak, that was the case or like yesterday you're like, oh, interesting and thinking more actively.
3: Yeah. So fantastic question. So I would say that it is still just on the flow state. If I I read a magic card, I do read the words to myself. So I am thinking like those things, like cards in the last two years are so good. So yeah, I definitely had to read a few in the situations, but yeah, I would say that I didn't even think like a single number yesterday.
2: Awesome,
1: thank you. Shout out to the patrons who did give questions um, for this. We're gonna start with uh, Mikey's question which is, what are some good tips on slowing down the game, making sure you're understanding where the game is at, and how you think you're supposed to win a game?
3: Hmm. So I think one thing that's really interesting in Magic is there's many metrics that you can look at in terms of what it means to be quote-unquote winning. Just like you run into a similar problem as to, like, what does it even mean to be a good Magic player? Like, there's actually, like, those things just don't have really good answers. Like, we already know that's not life total. It's not necessarily cards in hand. It's not even necessarily cards in play. Like, there's just so many metrics, and how do you relate them all to each other? Um, so, I think it's probably easiest to start off in a more macro sense. Like, even if it's as simple as like, does this game ever end from milling, like, or something like that? Like, from someone decking, and it's just like, okay, well, that doesn't happen. So, does it have to win with someone's life pole reaching zero? And at some point, you end up walking it back to scenarios where someone is just. Statistically probable to win. Like when when I was in my prime, I would say one of the most common phrases I would say to console my opponents when I was like up 5% to win and then ended up winning is I was just like, yeah, you were like statistically probable to win. I just got lucky. Like we can just move on. Like you weren't getting better than 95% and then you rolled 5%. Like, I'm sorry. Trying to look for ways that you can just try to be statistically advantaged, I think is probably the first thing to look at. So I think. Sometimes like looking at the end states could be difficult. Like there could be too many different ways a mid-range game plays. But my general advice for both deck building and playing is I think you can just enumerate turns one through five on both sides of the board and you can just see how those pair up and that can govern most of your mulligan and subboarding decisions. So you can just like brute force most of the the problems. Uh, So And then you can just premeditate all of those. So then you can just see the board state and already know if you're advantaged or not. Like you don't have to do any work there.
0: Yeah, I, that was a really good answer. I just want to echo what you just said. Uh, that like, if you think about the gate, like one of the best ways to slow down the game is actually to do it during the mulligan phase, uh, mm-hmm. and take your time to mulligan, because then you're actually thinking like, why am I mulligan this hand? Why am I not? What does the game look like, like while I'm looking mm-hmm. at this hand? And then it doesn't only slow down the game in that moment, but it like, lets you progressively sculpt the game as you play, as you've already thought about X number of scenarios, now you just have to think about
3: the things that have changed. Right, I, I think you can even do that in the deck building phase or in like the research phase. Like before you ever play a game with the deck, you can know the, like the hands you're signing up for. Like a rough adage that I've said before is that mulliganing isn't a choice, mulligans are dealt. Uh, so you receive a hand, that hand is a mulligan. And like, sure, you can change it on the scenario or if you're on the draw and your opponent mulligans and you care about how much time is on the clock and stuff, like you can adjust it by whatever metric you want. But I would probably say like 95% of the time, it's that you were dealt a mulligan that you, like we call it a choice only because then you can make a mistake. But like really, it, that the hand is a quality mulligan, not I am mulliganing.
1: Within that too, there's something that you, Put really well um, in talking about like mulling decisions and also just uh, also coming kind of to pace play for you, because I know that's like you said, a, a big deal. But when you look at a hand, you know, or even when you're playing a deck, kind of knowing what your first two or three turns look like with any individual hand, um, right? Knowing how to like kind of goldfish it out, mm-hmm. that should be kind of a prerequisite. And when you're able to do that with your deck and you have that kind of familiarity, that lends itself to then also, right, having more space to think about the finer points of that mulligan, but also then, you know, the, the game is just developing more so than just, you know, Oh, what am I, what land am I playing on turn
3: one or turn two? Yeah. Like, like j- just to add a quick example, there's been a lot of discourse or discussion in my day when Grixis Delver was like the best deck with Death Deathrite Chaman and Probe. And one common play that I would do that I felt like no one else was doing with Grixis Delver is when you play the mirror and you're on the draw there's a lot of power to actually just playing your first land and passing as opposed to playing like you can play cards that you want to get dazed but if like your opponent so if your opponent plays death right shaman and then they like have say like or, or delver and they could like daze your first turn play say if you only have a bolt and like a force of will or whatever you can just like wait a turn and then if they play like true name nemesis on turn two or whatever you can just like force of will that, and then you can pay for their days. Like a lot of people focus on like the days, well, if you get them to daze you, now it's like you're on the play and have an extra card. It's like, but they elected to daze you. They can just not daze you and save it for later if that's truly the thing that matters the most. If anything, you make their one land hands even better because you're gonna keep every one land plus Delver hand or whatever with the ponder. But like now you make it so that way they hit their land drop and you don't even know that they're missing a land drop and stuff like that. But if you just play land and pass, your force of will is way better. It never runs into a daze and you can just focus on the cards that matter instead of just this concept of like tempo and mana and this has to be what matters. It's like you can think a little bit outside of the box sometimes.
0: And I really hope you guys put days in MH3 Mason. This sounds really fun to include in modern.
3: I mean, there's already other free spells. I would love to pick up a Catrio Triome with my Days.
2: Exactly. It's, it's actually I'm... Super Days. It says if you pick <laughs> up a, a land this turn, you can cycle it for free. Uh, I, actually, wait, we gotta cut. We gotta cut. We gotta cut. That. Uh, uh, edit, that,
1: uh, edit that. Edit For our other question, we have Adrian asking. Um, and this is something I know that you'll have a great answer for. I'm excited for my first question. Uh, when looking through deck lists from Magic Online, what are the most important things you're looking for? Is it the flex spots? How many of an archetype made top eight or top 16? Mm-hmm. The presence of, you know, some individual card, like the interaction or, or other things? Like what when you're breaking that deck list, is it that you're looking at?
3: Yeah. So th- th- there's something that a few people we've traveled with, uh, I guess, called the clipboard. I, I would travel to these events and just have a clipboard that just has, like, tons of deck lists printed out, and I would just take notes, like, across all of them. People just wouldn't understand what I'm doing. Uh, in, like, my Prime with Jeskai, I, like, had, like, the weirdest metrics of just, like, your electrolyze count relative to, like, your, like, lightning bolts because, like, they played differently against Noble hierarchy. Like, I had all these wild things. Uh, but once again, it's, like, kind of appealing to, like, the actual art part of Magic. So first, I, I, I do say I try to value everyone's opinion, but that doesn't mean that I don't adjust for who it's from. It's just if it is from an unknown or someone that might not be as knowledgeable, they're just asking the question with a different pretense, but it doesn't invalidate their question. Uh, so when you see, say, known player play some sort of deck, like you're going to look at it with a slightly different lens. Uh, but it doesn't give you the right to judge someone that you haven't seen before, because it might just be watch with Knight two on an alt account. So pretty much what ends up happening is one thing that's very contrary is I actually don't care about the metagame, uh, which sounds really weird. Cause so many people spend a lot of time doing it. I kind of just view it as the meta game only exists in two spots. Uh, The first one is when you choose what archetype you're going to play. So you can make like some sort of like matchup matrix or however you want to determine or how you feel playing against mono green or whatever. I I know that's a favorite on the podcast, but like, yeah, if you're playing against like Stock Green and like how that's going, uh, you just like determine what terms and conditions you want to exist in the metagame. Then I kind of just don't care that much about the metagame from there. So it's like once you lock in the archetype, uh, you kind of lock in a lot of types of cards and you can kind of see how that works as a cohesive unit but you can already just get to start playing like copy any list that that matches that archetype and just like start getting some reps in or minimally just think about how the first five turns play uh but then you just need a plan for every matchup once you lock in the archetype it already has certain characteristics it's like if you play you know i know there's smash fans here and stuff so if if you're playing smash by just choosing to play a character against another character you're signing up for a lot of things to happen and like sure like this person might punish these moves more than other and like there is going to be further context but there's some things like if you play a spacey in melee you're just signing up for getting chain grabs sometimes like yeah you can try to be better at like getting out of it and stuff but like kind of signing up for that so so i actually don't care much about the metagame unless if a fringe deck is becoming way more popular. So like, but overall, like even if you take modern, it's like in a macro sense, it's like pretty similar from time to time. I mean, they just all have a bunch of MH two cards, but like you, you, or Lord of the Rings, I guess now. Um, but as a whole, you can kind of care about once you choose an archetype and some people are specialists. Like I played Delver and like, and legacy and Jeskai and modern, and that just takes it out of the equation and makes it like, Really easy because there's a lot more time you could put into like more finer tuned like things. And I'm not saying that that's optimal. There are some people that can hop from archetype to archetype, but you must have put in a lot of hours to just truly think that you can pick up like the deck of this archetype and like actually have higher percentage than all the other players. Um, On a personal level, if I ever play a deck that's one of the top three decks in the format, I won't play it unless if I believe that I'm favored in the mirror match. And I will think about the mirror match for a long time. So one other piece of advice I got from uh, a player a long time ago is that their ticket to success was literally, I will play the best deck and I will only play test the mirror because they just get this great matchup spread matrix. And then they'll just move this 55 to 60, 40. And I think I like uh, inadvertently ended up like stealing that adage for myself, but of the goldfish decks uh,
0: of yours, what, what do you think the numbers are versus for like, a control deck versus a not or double deck versus a non-controller double deck
3: just like on the whole like including yeah. standard oh there's way more aggro decks than anything else so you actually don't have that many standard decks
0: listed that's why i asked oh, okay uh but it was there are 13 uh on page one there's 13 grixis or Jeskai decks out of the mm-hmm. 20 and then on page two there is two decks one of them is like a mana leak uh, four color, just high control deck and the other tabs at mid range. So
3: mm-hmm.
0: that was, it was yeah. just funny that you said that. Cause it's like, I think that people don't play to their tropes enough in magic at times. Mm-hmm. They like, they feel like it holds them back, but sometimes mm-hmm. like you just understand something really well and you should do it.
3: Yeah. So, so th- th- that's slightly off topic, but I'll bring it back, but pretty much like when I started playing magic online and I was like triple queuing all the time, I actually said to myself, Watch Wolf 92 is gonna play all the decks that Jonathan Sekenik is too proud to play. And that was like my pretense. Like I would just play whatever was the best deck, but in paper, I would play the cards I own. I would play like whatever pet deck, I would play whatever deck like I thought was fun. I even did that at Pro Tour Hogak. I played Jeskai I went two and eight and constructed like at Pro Tour Hogak. Like I even have an interview after I went three on the draft and they're like, what are you playing? I'm just like, oh, I'm playing Magic the way I wanna play. Like, yeah, that doesn't work. Like. Get out of here. And I'm like, okay, sorry. Um, but yeah, so when you're like reading decks, it's every single knob matters so much. Like, like I will stare at mana bases for like actual hours. Like once someone is like cutting one land for another land, like I think Jerry had like a really good analysis of I'm gonna screw up which uh Japanese player it was, but like Noriuki uh was playing like a blue-white deck in standard that played two deserted beaches and everyone else would always play four. And like everyone's trying to figure out why. And then like Jerry came to the conclusion, and so that way they can like turn one, play the bounce spell that scries one uh on like a green decks, like early play, because they will never have a spawn their curve to replay it. And I was just like, yeah, like that's how you read a deck list. Like, you you really have to like see how like the lenses through which people are like looking at the game, which is also what I admire about both Jerry and Michael Jacob. But you kind of can understand the essence of a deck, but then you have to view it either through the lens that someone else is going through, or like think about the matchup spread. Like if you change two cards in the sideboard that's unlikely to only change the matchups that those cards come in against. It actually can like, Change how you maneuver in other like niche scenarios. In general, like the advice I would just give is just give people benefit of the doubt and justify their deck list. Don't critique it. Like, you're not going to get better by saying, this is what I would do. And it's like, do you know what? What you would do is what the rest of the world would do. The rest of the world isn't on the Pro Tour. Aren't you trying to do something like magnificent? Like, if I don't need someone to tell me what, you know, thousands of other people are going to tell me. I need to think about what this person's trying to tell me through this form of self-expression. And if you don't understand that, you just don't understand humans. Like you gotta, you gotta really like understand that we're all individuals playing this awesome game. So just give them some respect, give them some benefit. Of the doubt.
1: Well, with that, uh, you know, I just want to say thank you so much for giving us the time coming on the show. I have, you know, been looking forward to the day that I knew this would come since I basically joined the show. Um, because I, you're such a wealth of, of wisdom. Glad we're able to get that to, to the viewers today. Do you want anything on a plug, um, for yourself, your Twitter, anything like that? We can... Sure.
3: I'm watchwolf two on everything that I want people to know as me. I will not say any of my secret accounts today, but th- this has been a pleasure. Uh, I've known Mason and Abe for quite some time and I'm happy to finally get to meet Spencer, who I've heard a lot about both from listening to the podcast and also through, through Abe in particular, I am happy to come on anytime talking about anything. Um, it doesn't just have to be about magic online. I have, I've thought, even if I'm not as active, uh, I will be at the RC um, in Atlanta in December. So feel free to bring your watchwolves to get signed or whatever people like doing nowadays. And more than anything, just please be kind to each other and, um, Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: How was it, Dave? Was it everything you ever dreamed of and more?
1: Um, you know, considering the time constraint of only having, you know, roughly an hour of like interview record time, or however long the interview wound up being, we'll just have to have it back in the future. Then we'll get everything I really want. <laughs> but, uh, but no, no, I mean it's always great to. Uh, I feel like even in just being you know, like listening to the interview and, and listening to talk, I noticed how much of the things I've said on the show, he really echoed, um, that I might not have even realized I picked up from him, um, or the reason. So personally, it was obviously great. And I really hope the listeners all get a ton from him because, uh, you know, there's a, there's a ton there. So,
2: yeah, to me, it seems like we're going to be always improving from the Hollywood X ex- sector. And we've learned that sequels are the best way to make money. And I just think we just have to have, you know, the Sukinic part Two watch Wolf and Gale.
0: We got to get so. Jonathan back on, Nathan back on, uh, mm-hmm. Reed back on. It was one year ago today that we had Reed on the podcast. Wait, that's not true. That's
2: that's not that's possible. possible. That's just, it was in February that's that we had Reed on the podcast. On the podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we had Reed right when I got back from working on the project. <laughs> okay, that makes more sense. It, Reed, there was a post about Reed on there, and I just assumed that was a year-to-date post. It was on my computer screen, but somebody must have just tweeted it. Right. Mm-hmm. That makes more sense.
1: Well, we gotta have our own like uh, our Avengers mode. We've gotta bring them all back. Avengers, out listen, but we used to do that
0: for the hundred year, the hundred, the milestone episodes. where All the hosts would come back, but we just got too many CC hosts all the
1: time to do that anymore. Well, now we gotta do is all the guests from the last hundred. They come back, oh, So sure. we let like them run the show. We just had we just, just couldn't hour. show up.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's too funny. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, head on over to the Patreon Discord. I, you know, we said it in the show. The show will always be free, but f- uh, for $5 a month, you can join, in my opinion, the best Discord in Magic. I think it's pretty great. Uh, it's my favorite Discord in Magic. Uh, you can also join the public Discord. We are looking for possibly one more to join our fantasy football league for he's in game media. Here's the thing. Uh, We got a guy named Jessica dad. He's a listener of the podcast. We're waiting for you to sign up. And if you don't do it, Christian, we're going to give your spot away to somebody else. So, you know, I know you'll hear this. Join, join the Yahoo league. Uh, If you want to hear an entire episode dedicated to your question, which was really appreciated. I don't know if you saw uh, the response comment to last week's episode, a Ben Mason. Uh, you should go take a look. Uh, you can leave a YouTube comment, and then sometimes we'll be like, "Oh, this is good enough for an episode." Let's go! And then you can also follow us on Twitter at CCMPG. You can check out the rest of the network right now. That is just drafting arcades by Sam Black, an amazing podcast. He just did an episode on the Arena Cube. Hopefully, it's I don't. When does that end? Does it end next week? I think today. Does it? It's like Tuesday, I think. Okay, maybe it's next week. I think it, I think it ends with the new set on arena. So it might, it might be two weeks. So Thursday. Possibly, possibly. Uh, like, sub review and comment. And uh, you know, help, it's the best way to help the show grow. Abe, where can people find you?
1: Uh, people can find me over at uh, twitter.com slash for nothings. Same place as always. Um, DM open for coaching. And uh, you know, email me at more nothings at gmail.com for uh, increase as well.